Hey everyone, it's Jen and Jess from the beauty podcast, Fat Mascara, here to talk about Sol de Janeiro. So many of the beauty experts we interview on our show say that the key to great skin is to treat every inch of your body with the same attention you give your face. One of our favorite ways to do that is with Sol de Janeiro's Beja Flor Elastic Cream, a rich body cream that's clinically proven to boost collagen and has been shown to improve skin crepiness on the chest in just two weeks. Plus, it's scented with Sol de Janeiro's Charosta 68 fragrance. Sol de Janeiro is offering you 10% off your first order on soldejanero.com and free shipping with the code ACAST10. That's S-O L-D-E-J-A-N-E-I-R-O soldejanero.com and use the code ACAS10 for 10% off. This message comes from BOF sponsor eBay. You'll know real when you get it. It'll say eBay Authenticity Guarantee. And you'll feel it. Maybe it's a head-turning handbag, a watch that says it all, jewelry that makes you look like the gem, or sneakers and streetwear so fresh every step feels fly. eBay gets it. So look for the blue check mark next to that thing you love and be confident that every inch, stitch, sole and logo is checked by experts. With eBay Authenticity Guarantee, you can trust that feeling of real is always in reach. Ensure your next purchase is the real deal. Visit ebay.com for terms. This message comes from BOF sponsor eBay. You'll know real when you get it. It'll say eBay Authenticity Guarantee. And you'll feel it. Maybe it's a head-turning handbag, a watch that says it all, jewellery that makes you look like the gem, or sneakers and streetwear so fresh every step feels fly. eBay gets it. So look for the blue check mark next to that thing you love and be confident that every inch, stitch, sole and logo is checked by experts. With eBay Authenticity Guarantee, you can trust that feeling of real is always in reach. Ensure your next purchase is the real deal. Visit ebay.com for terms. Hi, this is Imran Ahmed, founder and CEO of The Business of Fashion. Welcome to the POF Podcast. It's Friday, May 12th. Recently, I was sent a book with the title, The World is on Fire, But We're Still Buying Shoes. It's by a former fashion journalist named Alec Leach, who spent years as an editor at streetwear website High Snobiety. During his time there, Alec saw up close the contribution his content was having on overconsumption in fashion and the lack of responsibility brands and consumers are taking for their own part in the climate crisis. This week on the BOF podcast, I sit down with Alec to go into depth on some of the key passages in this book and to understand what he thinks the industry needs to do to change. Basically, you'll see, he says that we're all part of this consumerist machine. And once we accept that, the potential for positive change becomes clear. Here's Alec Leach on the BOF podcast. Hello, Alec. Nice to have you on the BOF podcast. Welcome. Thanks for the invite. Of course. I have been diving into your, do you call it a manifesto or a book? I mean, it's a book. It's just really short which is something I'm quite proud of. It's short, but it packs a powerful punch, I have to say. And I can't wait to get into the nitty gritty. But before we get into the book itself, you know, I'm just keen to have a little bit of your background and what brought you to this point of deciding to write this manifesto on on the industry and our relationship with shopping. So I didn't grow up with fashion at all. 
you know, I grew up in a very quiet suburb in the south of England, in Brighton, where fashion was kind of, at the time, not really seen as something that people really thought worthy of engaging with. It's quite an academic, middle-class town. And my mum is an academic, and we never really had fashion around us when I was growing up. And then I went to uni to study politics and international relations. So I sort of always came into the industry with quite a background that was outside of fashion, I guess. And I started at High Snobiety in 2014 when it was a really, really small blog. Was that your first job, Alec? My first proper job in fashion, I mean, I was flipping burgers in a student bar and working retail and working in a student and working in clubs and that kind of stuff. But my first proper job was assisting the wholesale team at Carhartt Work in Progress in London. But that was only ever covering someone's maternity leave. And I saw the job at High Snob advertised on Facebook back when people used Facebook for this kind of stuff. And because my writing was always good, because I'd studied politics and I'd been writing so many essays at uni, my writing was pretty good. And I got the job, moved over to Berlin with about two weeks notice. I was 25 at the time, I want to say. So yeah, I mean, High Snob IT was very much my first proper job. And I started at a time when it was maybe 10 people in the company. And by the time I left, it was around 200. So it was a pretty quintessential kind of online media startup story. You know, you start off very kind of bright faced and green around the ears and you end up seeing basically every single part of the industry and having to cope with every one of the crazy, crazy twists and turns that uh, working in media is in the 21st century. (laughs) I'm sure you can relate. Well, I definitely can relate to that. And also seeing a blog turn into a business. But, you know, I got the sense there's this one passage in the kind of early part of your book where you reference your time at Heisnabiety. And you said something like, I've seen just how hard fashion's marketing machine works to keep us shopping because I was part of it. Talk to me about that kind of realization and that connection you made between the job you had and the role that that kind of job plays in the marketing machine. Yeah, I mean, working fashion editorial, I think, is a bit of a funny situation where you're working in an industry that's reliant on the same industry that you're writing about and reporting on for revenue. So it's a lot harder to have the kind of distance and criticism that, say, the New York Times or the Wall Street Journal or one of these guys has. And that's cool in a way because you can get so embedded with the industry and you can meet so many people and see so many things firsthand. But it also means that really the main job of a conventional fashion publication these days is to just, you know, promote consumerism and promote buying new things. And media is so fragile these days and publications are more reliant than ever on advertising money and the brands that they cover. You're kind of disincentivized from criticism. And I guess that's a trend that, you know, is happening all across the industry. And so, yeah, when it came time for me to do the book, I was very much thinking about my role in the industry and how I'd kind of been a part of that machine. But it's also, I also wanted to keep it kind of humble, like, I was really aware that a lot of people working in fashion would be reading it. And I didn't want to sound like I was being kind of high and mighty and judging people for working in the industry because I love working in the industry. I really, really do. And I think we just all need to accept that we're part of this consumerist machine. And once you accept that, then the potential for positive change becomes clearer and a bit more in reach, I guess. So when you left High Snobiety, was that 
in part because you felt like you were part of this machine? Not so much. I mean, I was really, really exhausted of Fashion Week. I was only doing the men's circuit, but I would still be doing London, Pitti, Milan, Paris twice a year. And I definitely had some real like Paris Fashion Week kind of burnout. You know, you see like a hundred collections in a week and your inbox is filled with press releases and you really do start to question like what's going to happen to all of this stuff and what the point of all the stuff is. So that was definitely a factor, but it was also just time to leave and I didn't want to leave Berlin and there wasn't any other company in Berlin that I really wanted to work for. So the whole sustainability stuff really just came out of necessity because I'd been commissioning writers for almost five years at High Snob and I knew just how precarious and how fragile that kind of career can be and I figured it would make sense for me to have some sort of specialization and I'd been going to the Copenhagen summit for three or four years by this point so I thought well this is something that really connects with me and something that maybe I can bring a bit of energy into. And specifically when it came to the topic of the book, you go to these panels and these conferences and it's always CSR people and supply chain people and carbon accounting and recycling technology. And no one's really there asking why we buy so many things, which every single panel talk you watch, it always comes down to overconsumption. But there wasn't really anyone in those spaces that was able to answer that question. And I felt that, you know, I'd basically been spending my career telling people to buy stuff. So I probably had a pretty good handle on why that is and why it is that we buy so much stuff. So let's talk about that because that's essentially the crux of your book. And the world is on fire, but we're still buying shoes is the title of the book. And it really caught my attention when it first came across my desk. And our team here were saying, Imran, you should really have a look at this. Let's talk about why we shop. The passage that I pulled out when I was reading, the materialistic urges knocking about in the back of my subconscious are in their own way contributing to the environmental destruction that's unfolding all around us. I mean, that's a pretty strong statement, but you know, I really relate to it because BOF in a way is it's has its own role to play in the industry. And maybe we're in a different position than advertising supported business because we see our role as trying to hold a mirror up in front of the industry and push it forward. And thank you very much for referencing our sustainability index in the book as well, because, you know, that's part of the way we try to do our job here. But you said, you know, there is this kind of drive for consumerism, but it comes from something much deeper. You said it's important to acknowledge that fashion is intimately connected to our sense of self. That makes shopping a pretty existential experience. It's deep. That's why we do it again and again, despite all we know about how problematic it is. So on the one hand, we have this deep, innate urge that fashion helps us with to express who we are, to show which tribes we belong to, which communities we affiliate with, how we want to be seen by the world. And on the other hand, that need to express ourselves is contributing to the climate crisis that's unfolding all around us. Yeah, like I say in the book, it's really complicated and it's really deep. And fashion just has such an enormous presence in our lives because it's one of the first things that people notice about us is how we look. You know, for better or worse, that's just kind of the way we function in a society. And there's a lot more systematic factors like the fashion industry is just probably the most sophisticated branding and marketing machine out of all the consumer industries, I would argue. 
the the industry is just extremely extremely good at making new things seem essential in a way that you don't really find in so many other industries in my opinion and i think it's really important to remember and this is something i didn't really have the space to talk about in the book but the very first pr marketing guys were inspired by therapists the guy that invented the term public relations was sigmund freud's cousin and he was leaning on a lot of the stuff that freud was doing to basically create this kind of idea of brands being more present in the lives of consumers which we're talking like almost 100 years ago very much in the beginning of the 20th century but it really really comes down to psychology because fashion's about who we think we are and how we see ourselves in the world and it's just really important to kind of remember that and to try and exert some sort of control over it because it's really easy to exploit that and i think a lot of contemporary consumerism isn't so positive it's not about like oh i'm going to create a really really amazing outfit that makes me feel great a lot of it is about just trying to keep up with what's going on and a lot of it is just about trying to fill a hole i guess and that was really a lot of what i'd experienced as a consumer you know when i left tyson variety which was the end of 2018 i remember taking a bit of a break and just looking at my wardrobe and it was just really sad. I didn't like any of it. It was all just stuff. Uh, and I'd been spending nearly five years of my life really covering the industry and really kind of being on the front line of what was going on and having the realization that I wasn't good at shopping was just actually quite sad. What do you mean you weren't good at shopping? I was compulsive and I wasn't really thinking about how I wanted to present myself and I wasn't doing it from a place of confidence basically which I think is a is a problem that a lot of people do slip into when you think about how powerful social media is and how powerful celebrities and all these sorts of peer pressures are a lot of the time people consume from a place of feeling like they have to do it just to be worthy rather than being like I just want to wear a suit cuz I want to wear a suit and yeah I, I was just asking myself a lot of questions like I felt like I should be good at shopping. I felt like I should be cool and have really great style, but I just didn't. And none of the stuff I've been buying meant anything to me. And I felt like maybe a lot of the reasons that that had happened was probably some of the same reasons that we buy so many clothes and the consumption is so out of control. It reminds me of those two charts you have in the book, Alec, which is our expectations of what we think we might feel like after we buy something and what actually we feel like. Have you heard of the hedonistic treadmill which is like this idea that the more we have the more we want yeah for sure the less happier we are and so we always adjust psychologically somehow we adjust our expectations and spending habits based on what money we have and so we just end up consuming more but it never really truly brings us happiness exactly at the time i'd also been doing a lot of therapy you know one of the really great things about living in germany is that you can basically if you're prepared to jump through a load of hoops you can basically get free therapy for a very long time and i've been doing therapy once a week for at least a year at this point which was just amazing to be able to be in a country that can kind of provide that to its citizens and part of that journey is also asking yourself about the life that you live and asking some difficult questions about where you're putting your energy and where you're putting your money and your time and that's where a lot of the more psychological and philosophical kind of elements of the book came out is it was about me kind of being in therapy every week and asking myself some really difficult questions afterwards in part of the book you talk about how we can hack that human psychology how we can overcome some of these deeply embedded 
themes like status and belonging and expression in order to kind of break the cycle. What's your advice or thinking there on how the industry needs to think about that and how each of us as consumers needs to think about that? I think as consumers, I know it's extremely cliched to be talking about mindfulness in 2023, but it really does come down to mindfulness and kind of awareness and being really, really in touch with how you feel when you wear clothes. I sort of came into it with the belief that like when you really, really know what you want and you really, really know who you are, then you don't actually need that much stuff. I think if you look at someone like Nick Cave or Fran Lebowitz or Michelle Lamy is an example I lean on in the book is like, they basically just do the same thing over and over again. And they're extremely iconic. They're style icons. They're some of the most stylish people in the world. And that basically comes down to knowing who you are and knowing who you're not. And a huge part of it is basically saying no to stuff. I know that I don't like puffer jackets or corduroy or sneakers. I just don't. When you sort of come and accept that, it's quite empowering to say no to things, actually. Exactly. I think that some of the people you mentioned there, and I could add a few other names to the list, they managed to figure out this uniform that precisely expresses who they are with no link to prevailing trends or perceptions of what might be cool or not cool at any given moment. And if I'm honest, like that's something I see happening more and more. Like whenever I do interviews with the media, they talk to me about trends or they ask me about, you know, well, what's on trend or what's in style. And the way I actually see things moving, Alec, and I'd be interested in your perspective on this, is that we're moving away from this idea of trends and more moving toward this idea of tribes where people find something that works for them, either because it suits their body shape or if it suits their lifestyle or the way they work. And it's less about hem lengths and colors and if your jeans are skinny or not. It's more about who you are. Of course, there are still macro trends and the industry kind of goes through that, but it just feels like trends are irrelevant now. Like People should just be expressing who they are. Yeah, I think I mainly work in menswear, except when it comes to sustainability, the work I do is kind of across the whole industry. But I have been working specifically in menswear for almost a decade now. And I do feel generally that we're in kind of the best period ever for menswear. It just feels like men in general are just getting really, really at ease with expressing themselves. Like I loved seeing all these guys wearing kilts on the red carpet last year. That was so cool. And I thought that was just like such a fun way for men to engage in fashion. And it feels really, really cool thinking that like, yeah, it's a lot more just about putting together something that gets people excited and that people feel a bit of energy with. When I started in the industry, I remember it was the middle of the whole hashtag menswear, Italian tailoring, workwear, red wing boots, raw denim kind of era, which transitioned pretty quickly into the Kanye and Ricardo Tisky had the whole watch the throne era. So black leather sweatpants then ripped jeans, you know, that made way for the sort of sportswear kind of mega trend. And, you know, there were like so many of these really enormous, massive trends that it does feel really, really nice to be in this strangely kind of post-trend world where things like collaborations and drops and resale value just isn't as important as just feeling really good about the clothes that you're in. Where do you think that's coming from, Alec? Why is that happening? Because just now when you were walking us through the prevailing trends in menswear that have 
dominated the scene for the last 10 or 15 years, it really made me think there was this moment where everyone had those red wing boots and there was that, like, why is that going away, do you think? I think the fashion industry just got too absurd for its own good. Like the whole collaboration thing just got so completely ridiculous and embarrassing to watch where like everyone was collaborating with everyone and they were making all these products that meant nothing. Some of the examples I point to in the book is like collaborative cars, collaborative toothpastes, collaborations between luxury houses. Like it all started getting so silly and nonsensical. And I think consumers just got bored with it. And we leaned a bit too much into the whole everything needs to be about hype and logos and luxury streetwear to a point where it just sort of stopped really being compelling and it started to seem a little bit silly. And that's been really, really good to see because I think it sort of proved the point that consumers are smarter than I think we think they are. And consumers have less patience with things than I think we think they do. And I think people see through a lot of that stuff now. But I guess, you know, as you point out in the book, it's still undeniable that we're producing and consuming far too many fashion products. And I asked Francois-Henri Pinot at Caring this pretty much point blank. I said, because, you know, Caring in that sustainability index that you referenced in the book was one of the companies that came out closer to the top of our ranking. Still a lot of work to do, but in terms of setting targets around, you know, the six areas that we were looking at in that index, they were one of the top performers in terms of the target setting and progress against those targets. But they still own Balenciaga. They're still producing, they're probably selling hundreds of thousands, if not millions of pairs of sneakers per year. So I asked him, I said, you know, how do you reduce your environmental footprint, your environmental impact, if you're producing more and more things? And his view was, and he recently said this in their financial results, they said that their position is that the industry as a whole, and caring in particular, has to make fewer, higher quality items at a higher price. Do you think that's the solution? Is that where we ultimately have to get to as an industry? Is like we just need to produce, sell, and consume half as much stuff? Yeah, I mean, that's a really tricky one because... I basically wrote a book about why it's good to buy less stuff. And a lot of the conversations, because I work in the industry that I've had with people, are like, well, what should brands make of this? And it's kind of, can you go to a brand and tell them to make less money or to like sell less stuff? You know, it's quite a difficult proposition to give to a business. It's like, I actually think it'd be really good if you sold less stuff. I think consumers have an enormous role to play. Governments, of course, have an enormous role to play. I think if we want a less wasteful and less polluting and less trend-obsessed, less absurd fashion industry. I think that's something we need to do culturally. I don't think we can rely on the brands that make the most amount of money out of the current system to kind of give us a sustainable, more ethical industry. The industry obviously has a role to play, as do governments and consumers. You know, they all have to be pushing in the same direction. When we talk about the industry as a whole and sustainability, I think the much thornier question is, at what point do consumers basically stop believing anything that brands tell them about sustainability? Because, you know, we're already seeing the curtain is starting to drop on a lot of the sustainability initiatives out there. And another factor that's completely left out of the conversation with sustainability is that currently, no major fashion consuming market in the world has truly been affected by climate change or has truly been 
directly damaged and destroyed by climate change, which is pretty inevitable. You know, everyone's going to be hurt by climate change and everyone's going to suffer, not equally, but everyone is going to feel the pain. And especially when you start talking about tipping points where things spiral out of control really rapidly, I think fashion is really greatly underestimating just how much of a threat greenwashing is to its long-term social standing. Because every industry has a license, right? Every industry has a social license. We don't let people sell guns and alcohol and cigarettes whenever they want. And right now, fashion enjoys a social license because it's associated with empowerment and retail therapy and these kind of positive connotations. But if people finally realize that 15, 10 years of CSR initiatives weren't able to decarbonize the supply chain, I don't think people are going to be like, you guys do truly share my values and I can't wait to spend my money on yet more clothes. I think right now, just because the numbers are going up for so many people and everyone's beating their quarterly results, it's very easy for them to think that greenwashing is something that they sort of need to do with certification. And, you know, you just keep the conversation moving and don't have to really do the work that's required. It's an industry built on branding. It's an industry built on narratives. And right now, the narrative is empowerment and... Um, exclusivity and athleticism and aspiration, you know, it's all these positive things, but it can easily also be a narrative about ecocide and misdirection and lying about the greatest threat that the human race has ever faced. The tobacco example is something that I always find super, super helpful. You know, this was an industry that was really connected with lifestyle and status. And now it's, nobody thinks that tobacco is an industry that has a positive future ahead of it. And um, I think we need to be really careful. We'll be right back with more on the BOF Podcast. Hey everyone, it's Jen and Jess from the beauty podcast Fat Mascara here to talk about Sol de Janeiro. So many of the beauty experts we interview on our show say that the key to great skin is to treat every inch of your body with the same attention you give your face. One of our favorite ways to do that is with Sol de Janeiro's Beige Flor Elastic Cream, a rich body cream that's clinically proven to boost collagen and has been shown to improve skin crepiness on the chest in just two weeks. Plus, it's scented with Sol de Janeiro's Charosta 68 fragrance. Sol de Janeiro is offering you 10% off your first order on soldejanero.com and free shipping with the code ACAST10. That's S-O L-D-E-J-A-N-E-I-R-O soldejanero.com and use the code ACAST10 for 10% off. This message comes from BOF sponsor eBay. You'll know real when you get it. It'll say eBay Authenticity Guarantee. And you'll feel it. Maybe it's a head-turning handbag, a watch that says it all, jewellery that makes you look like the gem, or sneakers and streetwear so fresh every step feels fly. eBay gets it. So look for the blue check mark next to that thing you love and be confident that every inch, stitch, sole and logo is checked by experts. With eBay Authenticity Guarantee, you can trust that feeling of real is always in reach. Ensure your next purchase is the real deal. Visit ebay.com for terms. You know that's the sound of another sale on your online Shopify store. But did you know Shopify powers selling in person, too? That's right. Shopify is the sound of selling everywhere. Online, in-store, on social media, and beyond. 
Shopify POS is your command center for your retail store. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify has everything you need to sell in person. With Shopify, you get a powerhouse selling partner that effortlessly unites your in-person and online sales into one source of truth. Track every sale across your business in one place and know exactly what's in stock. Shopify helps you drive store traffic with plug-and-play tools built for marketing campaigns from TikTok to Instagram and beyond. Plus, Shopify's award-winning 24-7 help is there to support your success every step of the way. Do retail right with Shopify. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash BOF, all lowercase. Go to shopify.com slash BOF to take your retail business to the next level today. Shopify.com slash BOF. This message comes from BOF sponsor eBay. You'll know real when you get it. It'll say eBay Authenticity Guarantee. And you'll feel it. Maybe it's a head-turning handbag, a watch that says it all, jewellery that makes you feel like the gem, or sneakers and streetwear so fresh every step feels fly. When it comes to style and luxury, eBay gets it. They're making sure the things you love are checked by experts. And not just any experts, specialised experts. Real people who love this stuff, with real, hands-on authentication experience. So when you see that shiny blue check mark that says authenticity guarantee, shop with confidence. Every inch, stitch, sole and logo is verified authentic through a detailed inspection. That's how you know that eBay's got your back. Because when you finally step into those sneakers, put on that watch, get your real gold glow up, swing that handbag over your shoulder or step out in that streetwear, you'll realise that feeling is unlike any other. With eBay Authenticity Guarantee, you can trust that feeling of real is always in reach. Ensure your next purchase is the real deal. Visit ebay.com for terms. Well, you've raised two really interesting and important points I'd like to go into a bit more depth on there. The first is the impact of the climate crisis and who it impacts first. And the second is on greenwashing. On who it impacts first, the often... You know, when I'm having these conversations with people in the industry, including, by the way, garment workers in places like Bangladesh and India, they've made it really clear, like, they need those jobs, too. So if we start producing fewer things, they theoretically get impacted as well. And I think when Mr. Pino was talking about making fewer things, he wasn't saying, and also making less money. He was saying making fewer things at a higher price which also means you can pay people a better wage for whatever they're making. The system for me is broken insofar as we're producing more and more stuff and we're still trying to like shortchange everyone in the supply chain, cutting costs. And whether that's on the luxury end or fast fashion, it's the same story. And I think we need to recreate or reimagine the supply chain so we're making higher quality things that last a long time, that don't go out of style, that express who I am as a person in a way that doesn't require me following trends, and also that we pay the people in the supply chain more so that they can have a living wage, so that their whole livelihood isn't dependent on the industry making more and more stuff in order to survive, and also that then therefore companies are making more money per garment or per item so that 
there's still a healthy business. Like it's reimagining that whole system that's necessary. You're completely right. Like right now we just have this really nonsensical system where the brand kind of sits in the middle of the overall life cycle of a garment. It's produced in the supply chain and then it's disposed of at the end of its life. And the brand isn't responsible for really what happens in either direction. Brands aren't really that responsible for what happens in their supply chain and they're not really responsible for what happens to all these clothes when they're no longer wearable. And we completely need to reimagine the way that the supply chain works because right now it's basically suppliers getting exploited all the time. And as you guys pointed out in the sustainability index, it's suppliers that are expected to foot the bill for all of these sustainability commitments that the brands are making. The other point you raised, which is really important, is how the industry communicates on sustainability and in a way how the word sustainability has been co-opted by the industry as just another marketing word or term. Greenwashing is a big part of the issue. You know, the way that the industry has made using the word sustainability to make people feel okay about their overconsumption. It's also funny in the studies have shown again and again that sustainability is also not a big priority for consumers which, you know, makes the whole thing even more complicated. But yeah, I think as fashion is so based on values and it's so based on identity, of course brands feel the need that they need to be engaging with sustainability as an issue because they know that everybody cares about it. But the problem is, is that as a society, we just don't know how things are made. That whole chapter in the book where I sort of guide people through the supply chain was about showing people that, like, it's really complicated and it's really long. People think that just because something is made in China or Italy, that like there's just a factory that makes like a shoe in Italy. Whereas in reality, it's a lot more complicated. And the fact that we're so in the dark with how things are really made makes us really vulnerable to greenwashing. Because greenwashing is always about just hiding something in between the lines, you know? It's about like, hey, we reduced our scope two emissions by 10%, even though scope one and two emissions are like a fraction of the overall impact of a fashion business. But it's also people are starting to really wake up to it. You know, people are generally suspicious of any sustainability claims now and people are becoming a bit more fluent in it, which I think is a really, really promising sign. So, Alec, where do we go from here? You said we don't need a few people to be perfect. We need millions of people to be better. And I think that really sums up the philosophy or principles that we need to keep in mind. When I was in university, we talked about diffusion of responsibility and how when responsibility is diffused across so many people and it's not clear who the single owner is, then it's much harder to get people to take action. It's also hard to get people to take action because of the other point you raised, which is, well, we're starting to experience more extreme weather situations. There's more storms and there's really hot summers in Southern Europe. And there's more of this like extreme weather phenomena around the world, fires and whatnot. We still haven't reached the point where we can't live in certain parts of the world where a lot of this consumption is happening. But we can't wait until that happens before we start taking action. So like, when you're sitting down with people in the industry and calling them to action on this, like, what are you saying we need to do as consumers and as an industry? So the consumer point, like, that's something I was absolutely thinking about, you know, this diffusion of responsibility. And it's something that I'd noticed a lot in my own life as well. And it's so easy to think like, well, President Biden is still planning on releasing a bunch of leases for even more oil to be pumped in the US. So why should I change my lifestyle? 
for me, it was really, really important to make the message of the book feel like an opportunity. That's why I keep coming back again and again to the same point that like, it's better to buy less stuff because you can buy things more mindfully. When you buy things more mindfully, you buy things better. It's just better for you. I sort of generally believe that like we in, in the global north live these really unsustainable, kind of wasteful, out of control lifestyles. And the sort of irony to all of that is that they don't actually make us happy. We have completely spiraling out of control mental health problems across societies in the global north. And I think that slowing down and sort of questioning your priorities is good for us as people as well as good for the planet. So yeah, that was a really big point for me to make was that as a society, it's good if we question our consumption habits and it's actually better if we're a bit more mindful and intentional and conscious with them because it's just better in the long run. And then when it comes to the industry, I always just tell people transparency is so, so important and people need to understand that the industry is kind of systematically broken and you shouldn't really shy away from that because... Effective communication on sustainability is always about trust. And you can't cultivate trust if you're hiding things between the lines. Indeed. And as we talk about transparency, it's also being really clear that while we in the global north are driving most of the consumption and are least impacted by the climate crisis, it's the people who make our clothes, usually in the global south, who are facing the most extreme weather phenomena, whose livelihoods are at risk, whose environments and living environments are at risk. And so even though we're starting to feel much warmer summers in Europe, it's nothing like what's happening in, in say, Bangladesh or Vietnam or India or other places where so many of these clothes are being made. Yeah, it's completely colonial. You know, it's, it's still that same dynamic. You know, you have the poorer countries in the global south or I remember when I was at university, we'd talk about dependency theory, where you have the core countries that extract all of the raw materials and make the most money out of them, and the periphery countries that are basically trapped as either raw material suppliers or just manufacturers. It's completely the same dynamic as we had in colonialism, and it's completely extractive and exploitative. And like you said, that's just why we need to reimagine this whole value chain completely, because these people should be seen as partners, all of these factories that brands work with. They shouldn't be seen as people to just kind of constantly be driving prices down because they're the most essential part of the industry, where all the clothes are made. Well, Alec, I'm super grateful to have had the chance to dive into some of the thought-provoking ideas and analysis in your book, and thank you for sharing it with me. For all of you listening... If you have an interest in this topic, I really recommend you pick it up. But Alec has it available on his website. The book is called The World is on Fire, But We're Still Buying Shoes. Thank you, Alec, for joining us. Thank you for having me. The BOF podcast is edited and produced by Emma Clark and Eric Bria in the BOF studio team. 
Hey everyone, it's Jen and Jess from the beauty podcast, Fat Mascara, here to talk about Sol de Janeiro. So many of the beauty experts we interview on our show say that the key to great skin is to treat every inch of your body with the same attention you give your face. One of our favorite ways to do that is with Sol de Janeiro's Beige Flor Elastic Cream, a rich body cream that's clinically proven to boost collagen and has been shown to improve skin crepiness on the chest in just two weeks. Plus, it's scented with Sol de Janeiro's Charosta 68 fragrance. Sol de Janeiro is offering you 10% off your first order on soldejanero.com and free shipping with the code ACAST10. That's S-O- L-D-E-J-A-N-E-I-R-O soldejanero.com and use the code ACAST10 for 10% off.